Hey everybody, Chris Merman here. And if you're just uh, discovering this series, this is a series of podcasts that we ran a few years ago at Christmas time um, about the 12 Agile Principles and how it's a kind of sort of 12 days of Xmas sort of thing. So we're not endorsing Christmas, anything more than another holiday. It's just in the U.S. This is, this is what we have to work with. So it's a little hokey thing that we did. Um, but I really like this. I like this series. I like the idea of constantly saying how we receive the principles now, how we utilize them now. Often, it's so funny, oftentimes what we do with the principles is really really the main disagreements that we have in our work, right? It's not that we disagree that welcoming change is a bad thing, right? But what change means to people has obviously shifted and 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 differed over time. In this podcast, you'll hear Jay, Colleen, and Giff talk about a lot about how change is documented, right, in the process. They would talk about, you know, change requests and uh, a lot of acronyms of of how we actually document that change and how we ingest that change, right? And this principle, in my mind, never really gets into that. What's funny? What happens is we just say that you should welcome it. We don't say how. And as we all have learned, how we see the change, ingest the change, and use the change is really where sometimes we uh, don't always reach across the aisle and, and see everybody's perspective, right? Welcoming changing requirements could mean just change how we do work in general, right? Big picture, right? big T transformation. It could also be uh, how a specific framework says, hey, here's our, here's our intake or demand intake, right? Here's how we, how, how we see changing requirements. Um, you'll hear uh, some stories from the um, the goers on how they didn't quite take user feedback and they put something out that nobody really used or wanted. And, you know, that's a classic example, right, for all of us. The, the really interesting part for me is moving forward, right, in 2022 and beyond is, well, how do we see change now, right? If you look at jobs, they talk about... Um, you know, there's traditional org change management, right? How um, companies, there's roles that are just for helping companies deal with the change that happens. Managing the change, which in some ways feels like, hey, how am I going to ride lightning? Um, despite despite what, um, what 80s rock bands would tell you, right? It's kind of impossible, right? So, um, so when we when we view it, is it is it a specific role that deals with it? Is it a job of of um, a transformation leader, a coach, whatever you want to call them nowadays? Right? D- is is that what the change is? Is it hey, once the sprint starts, you can't change the backlog? I it's it's kind of various levels of that and. I really think before we can really get to the how we're going to manage change and how we're going to receive it and then utilize that change, right, we really need to come to an agreement of what it is. Um, and I just find that interesting. It's why I love this, this topic. It's, I, I think that 
This is why I'm so looking forward to seeing some of my fellow Agilists next year so we can have more discussions like this. There's, it's been two years of me not being able to discuss this and, and you know, face-to-face, and, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. So with that, I'll turn it over to, uh, to the crew for, um, for principle number two, and uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Hi, I'm Lois Kelly, and welcome to the Agile Uprising podcast. On the second day of Christmas, my true love gave to me two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. My name is Colleen Johnson, and you are listening to the Agile Uprising podcast. Welcome to our second in the um, 12 Days of Agile Christmas series um, that coincides our second principle with our two turtle doves. Um, I'm joined today by Jay Herskamp. Hello. And James Gifford. Hello. Welcome, guys. So today we're going to be talking about the second principle, welcome changing requirements even late in development. Agile processes harness change for the customer's competitive advantage. Um, We're going to run through our same four questions here as we will through all of the principles in this series. So let's open it up with the first one here. Why is this principle important? Ooh, Gifford, can I go first? Sure can. (laughs) So uh, as the resident PM, Agile PM around here, um, I have been fully sheep dipped in the idea of delivering via waterfall. And the first thing that we can all, any, even if you're not a PM, you know, the first thing that can throw up your project quickly is changing requirements. I think it was the Agile Samurai that said there are three absolutes about every project. Uh, You will never know everything you need to know to start a project. Everything you know will change, and there will always be more time than uh, there will always be more work than time and money will allow. So that I like that yeah, one. those the first two are really dovetailed together, right? Everything you learn during the project is inevitably going to change, and I have done my fair share of waterfall battles. And the first time things get screwy is the first time you thought you knew something and you realize you didn't. And what you thought you knew was wrong, and now you need to do a change request, a CR. And that's the first thing that will sideline any project. And that was one of the things that for me personally was so inviting about um, Agile and Iterative Development. The fact that you're getting to smaller windows, smaller smaller delivery timelines, you can adjust and absorb these type of changes easily or, or, or easier, one should say. And to me, that's huge because as you go, you're just going to learn more. There's a lot of, um, I hate to quote Donald Rumsfeld, uh, but there's the known knowns and unknown, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. And those last ones are always the ones that catch up on you and, and can torpedo your initiative. So for me, this is this is important to me because I think a, a good team should get good at which is accepting you know, the peaks and valleys of a project and how it goes. And I think that's really, really important. What do you think, Gifford? So I'm going to go back to my days as a developer. Um, and when we had started experimenting with Agile, um, the you know getting that instant feedback of, hey, you, we were totally wrong when, when we thought what we told you that it was supposed to work like that. Like we were completely wrong. And I was it was always refreshing to know, well, let's make a trade-off and I'll fix this and uh, we'll see if we have time to get to that later. Um, I always had happier customers and, you know, I worked 
as a data analyst on a on a team building an application before I got in the de- uh, development. And Jay, I can remember the torturous PCR processes. So it, it this principle just does resonate home for me because I like delighting customers and for them to get pretty much what they want or some version of it that we can make better later. It's, it's just powerful. And a lot of companies still try to employ crazy PCR processes today, even in try, even when they're doing agile. (laughs) What what are your thoughts, Colleen? Well, I mean, I think, I think when you think about, um, how fast everything moves now and how low the barriers are to entry for, um, you know, competitive competitors to enter the space. This principle is more important now than I think it maybe even was when it was written, um, you know, 15 years ago. So you think about um, welcoming those changing requirements, you know, I think um, what you release today could be met with new competitors in two weeks. It's, it's so easy to, um, to kind of jump into the game and jump into these different spaces. Um, so you have to be able to respond quickly. And I think um, the companies that, that you see die, and they, these can be big, um, big companies that have been around forever that end up losing their foothold because they can't change and they can't um, respond to their customers' needs, like this principle says. And I think that, you know, this to me is more important now than it, than it even was when it was written. I would, I would concur wholeheartedly um, to your point, Colleen, especially the speed. I mean, most of us have been in IT for over a decade and you look at I mean, even just five years ago, how things moved, even in the Agile world, compared to how, how quickly they move today, it is almost insane that you could have someone come out with an idea and with a <laughs> React.js WYSIWYG editor can have a working application right. <laughs> probably in, in a couple days um, off some cockamamie idea. You know, that <laughs> is that's where it really gets crazy and you need to be comfortable with, with things changing as you learn. Yeah. And I think, I think you want, you know, for a lot of organizations, they actively fight against change um, and it, and it shoots them in the foot, right? They're trying so hard to come up with a plan and stick to a plan and plan out every sprint and forecast what's going to be delivered every sprint. And um, they, they, they cripple their ability to be responsive. Um, And that's the whole point of doing agile, right? Is that you can quickly respond to what's, changing and what your customers are asking for in a lot of ways it's like why even do um why even embrace all of these practices if you're not also going to welcome um that every sprint should change or every you know every item in your backlog can change daily um because that's that's kind of what we're trying to get to with with this flexibility and fluidity and i and i think that it's to kind of re- what resonated with me about that the notion of people are afraid of the change or, or, or managing change. One of the things that you know we've, we've been, I've been doing a lot with uh, companies is is working on um, a, basically a business outcomes template, which is essentially just a canvas that goes through the the pros and cons of why we're doing this uh, and the benefits of the customer and what outcomes we're going to expect. Um, but so instead of funding the entire million dollars that this uh, this whole cam this canvas or a series of canvases for a you know a larger program, we only give you enough money for a quarter's worth of money. So we know what the team's run rate is, um, and once you start kind of introducing some of those concepts, it that that whole notion around PCRs and and the worry about the budget, it 
it definitely starts to go away because we, as they, as people start to measure those kind of outcomes, uh, and they can see, Hey, we were totally heading in the right direction or, or we're way off. They know that, Hey, we only spent 60 grand and, uh, we stopped doing what we were doing. And that's when I think that's the mindset shift that would help actually people start to embrace this practice more when they start looking at the cost benefits. Uh, how many times have you been Jay in a, in a, or Colleen in the middle of a project and you're, you know, 75% through the budget and the customer's seen it and they're like, yeah, this isn't what we wanted at all. And so now you're going back to ask for more money to, to make it right. Right. Yeah. No. And unfortunately I feel like a lot of us have been through those projects where it's been a huge miss and you don't find out, um, you don't find, get that feedback until it's too late to respond to it. And, um, you probably could have gotten that feedback earlier if you had the opportunity to put it in front of the, the users sooner. And it's the worst, it's the worst feeling in the world, right? When you're sitting there and you, you've put your, your, you and your team have put your heart and soul into something and then have the customer give you this sort of look like, uh, thanks, but I was expecting this and this is the, the, this is something different. It's, it's the quickest way to kill motivation. Um, the teams, you know, you get, you get, you can't help get a set and get ag- and, and aggravated. And, and to your point, James, I think it, it does deal a lot with how people deal with change as a whole, you know, the whole Kubler-Ross five stages of grief and how that relates to how people work their way through a change cycle. And it's, it's the worst feeling in the world. So we need to get comfortable with the, the idea of change for the customer's advantage. And can you guys, do you guys have any personal examples where, um, where that this principle was kind of thrown out the window and, and what happened to the project or the team? Because I think you're 100% right, Jay, that um, this has such a negative impact on team morale, you know, so take away the, the financial impact to the organization or the potential loss of customers or customer revenue, but the, the morale hit is huge. Um, do you guys have any stories you can share about specific projects or teams that have gone through that? Uh, yeah, so we were, it was helping a large um I guess it's a life sciences company rebuild an e-com platform. Um, and we, we sat them down and, and we had the discussion around what's the minimum viable thing we could deliver for the time frame that we had and still deliver a product to our customers based on some, some user usability testing and uh, some company feedback. And, you know, basically the, the VPs were like, well, it's not good enough unless we have this, that, uh, we better nickel plate, gold plate this. And, you know, so the team set out to deliver um, and, and we got, you know, we went through um, basically 12 weeks of development and we we brought customers in for them to kind of look at it. And with the VPs in the room, they the customers just completely crapped all over everything that we had kind of delivered and they're like you know what this if i was a big hospital this all these metrics and graphs that you've delivered us would be great but i'm a small mom and pops uh retailer and all i really care about is seeing my inventory levels and maybe some basic usage data and the team was just completely deflated because, I mean, it had like, when, you know, when you mouse over graphs and you're on a line chart and it pops up and it gives you like cool percentages and all this really interactive charts. And the team is like, 
we just spent 12 weeks pouring ourselves into all this crazy charting long nights you know weekends just to have the customer go yeah we don't need that and uh i mean it totally deflated the team and it it took them at least four sprints to get back up to even pace or even really showing an interest and i could even see a dip in quality um because they were so deflated it's it's crushing right it takes the wind right out of the sails uh, for me, almost the same experience. <clears throat> I was working at a large financial institution, and I was working on this weird, esoteric, obscure project on how to handle past due buckets on a customer when they go when they enter and exit a payment program, either successfully or unsuccessfully. Right. So you can imagine already: it's collections, it's credit cards, banking, it's. Um, who is past due. So it's a collections customer. So it gets even more obtuse. And then how many, what was in the 30 day bucket, 60 day bucket, 90 day bucket when they entered the, when they entered the program, did they successfully exit? Did they fail off? Were they re-aged? Were they recycled? All this crazy stuff, right? Um, I, I ended up with this enormous Visio. I had to print out a plotter with all the decision points. And we get all the way to the point where we think we got it. And some random analyst from the business MIS side, um, who was not part of the program team, not part of the project team at all, comes in and what amounts to the 11th hour and says, oh, well, what about this? And I forget what the this was. It was something about with a customer aging right before their due date or, or some some wonky sort of fringe case, um, which set, which – it's a fringe case, but it upset the fundamental assumptions that we were building this whole logic module on. And the team was just mortified, right? Because I have like, I have an entire cubicle full of plotter paper of all these enormous visios that all these hours went into that basically just got thrown right out the window. And uh, we should have, in hindsight, it could have been done more iteratively. I mean, this is right when this was the company that was just dipping their toe into the agile water. And this is one of those projects we tried it with. So I really can't fault the the, the, the company itself, however, but this is a, the textbook example of um, shorter iterations and being able to welcome change because this almost destroyed the entire project. I went back to the well for so much money. Um, I was actually only a business analyst on this program, and it got to the point where my boss took the project manager off because none of them could understand what I was talking about with the program. <laughs> and I just started representing it as the PM because I was closest to it. And to the point where the head of development, when I saw when she saw me coming looking for more money, she just nodded, said, "How much longer do I need?" Gave me the money, and that was the end of it. It was it was an, it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. How about you, Colleen? Yeah, I, I tell this story quite a bit, so so a few of you may have heard it. Um, I worked for a, a web and audio conferencing company that competed with WebEx and GoToMeeting, and we had been receiving a lot of requests to implement a way to play clips of videos in your presentation so that you would push them to your audience, your audience would stay in sync with the video and the audio, and you could push a poll or talk over it and pause it. Um, so we started down the path of this project and we were using Scrum at the time. Um, we had really planned out every two-week sprint way at the beginning <laughs> of what we were going to get done and what we had to complete in each sprint in order to hit our milestone. Um, and about halfway through this project, Flash support shit the bed and we had to start all over. Um, and so fast forward, this project took us 18 months to get out the door. And we released it and had an epic party with shirts and beer and hats. And we had a waffle bar where you could cook bacon into your waffles. <laughs> and 
that sounds so good right now. And, I mean, it was an epic party and a huge relief to everybody to have it done, like you were describing. Um, and it was crickets, right? Nobody used it. So customer care started reaching back out to users to say, um, you know, why, why aren't you using this? Isn't this what you asked for? You know, you requested this and we invested all this time and money in it. And they were like, oh, that's not what we meant. Um, we wanted a way to play clips back of a video from a previously recorded presentation. So if I've given the same talk 15 times, I can just push that part of the talk and then answer questions over it. Um, so we completely missed the mark. And um, again, you know, I think we're all kind of saying the same thing. If we had done this in a more incremental fashion where we were inviting that change into the process and inviting that feedback into the process in a way where we were saying, is this what you want? No, great. Let's keep, let's keep, let's refine it. You know, let's get it right. Let's keep iterating on this so we make sure we've got um, your problem solved. And, and we didn't do that. We spent a year and a half building the wrong thing and um, ended up having to start all over on the solution they actually wanted. I don't think anybody ever actually used that stupid feature at the end of the day. Um, <laughs> oh, that's that's crushing. That's crushing. It is, and the team's devastated afterwards, right? That's a lot of their time and brain power that goes into building that new feature that. That nobody wanted in the first place. Um, well, on the on the almost other side of this coin, I have an example recently of where welcoming change actually helped worked. Um, so there's a team I'm currently scrum mastering that's doing primarily we're plugging away at integration pieces between one uh, one vendor built system and our internal custom systems, and uh, a change came up out of the blue where we need to change the actual uh, language and architecture that we're using to deploy this code. So we went from one type of uh, network and utility that's basically run by the enterprise to a completely different one, which is based on, uh, long story short, it's based on OpenShift. So it'll give us the, the functionality to use Docker and Kubernetes and all these this fun stuff. And, and it really is the right decision for the for the organization. But this came out of nowhere. So we had to Okay, well, let's go back to the drawing board and see what we got. And because uh, we were looking at small chunks and because the team was comfortable with things changing, we basically all went into a room for a grooming session. I gave a bunch of developers markers and said, okay, well, now with this change, everybody goes up to the board and write the things that we're not thinking about. Write the things that are at the top of your head you know we're going to have to be concerned about. We spent an hour in a, in a room and we came out with, oh, okay, this is going to end up costing us you know, an arbitrary number of 30-something points. And in my next update, it was, okay, well, due to the change in approach, we had to change our architecture for the deployment of the integration code. However, it only affects 30 points. Uh, we've already slotted it for this sprint, this sprint, and that sprint. So we look to be complete by this PI, blah, 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 blah. So because we were working iteratively and because we're, we're comfortable with the idea of change and it wasn't a big deal, the team, I was expecting them to be all up in arms and everybody just sort of went, eh shook their heads and said, okay, here's my estimate. Let's get back yeah, to work. That's awesome. Well, I think a lot of times you hear teams push back on the ability to welcome change because they feel like so much is planned out for them in advance. So this is something that they don't feel like they have control over. Um, Gif, I, I guess I'd ask you, have you ever, like, how do you encourage a team to um, take ownership for welcoming change at the team level if they feel like they, you know, they can't do that at the organizational level? <sighs> That's, that's always a, it's always a tricky one. Um, so I think one of the, one of the most welcoming change events that we had was when, when the, when the corporation said, you know, we, we need to get the mobile platform usage up, uh, of the, of our product. And they literally had no strategy for how to do it. Um, 
literally like 2% of the entire population of customers used the mobile platform because it was just awful. Um, and they were like, well, I mean, the worst case thing we do, we send a product owner, a designer, and a developer out to the customer and just have them have them watch for a day. And for them to kind of even think about that, uh, you know, based on our, our coaching suggestions, that was them welcoming a change in the way that they had thought about doing it. And it was the, it was, the miraculous thing about that was they got those three people out in the field working with some people in the stores. They realized that, you know, they're, they're using this gigantic laser looking, looks like a Star Trek, like blaster to like scan labels <laughs> on the shelf. And like, then they type in some numbers. And, and so like they go through this whole rigmarole of watching them basically take that scanner and create an order with it. And the designer and the developer got scratching their heads. He, the, the developer was like, look, I saw this awesome scanning software, um, like uh, SDK at a, at a trade show. We could totally pull this in and build a, 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 a native um, iOS app around this and give them like a iPad or not an iPad, but an iPod touch. And, and then the designer's like, well, here's how we could do some screens literally on the plane ride back to the office they come up with this concept two weeks later, there's a prototype built the next week. They're back out in the field that that experiment ends up going on to save the cause the company like $6 million in proprietary hardware. And now they can, the person can literally do their job standing in the aisle of the store. Um, and the mobile usage of, of the product was up to 98% when it finally released. Uh, That's the, awesome. The full version of it, and it was like some people taking that courage to embrace the change of how they go and and get requirements. Yeah, I love that example because it's out. You know, um, I think you know where even where the three of us started with our stories were all around how the work gets broken down. Right, it has to be incremental. We have to be able to put things in front of customers incrementally to get that feedback to harness change and. Um, I love that in this example, you started way at the beginning before, like you said, before requirements are even written to understand, um, really understand those needs from the very beginning. I think a big part of, of the challenge to teams to, to welcome change, a big part of this ties to, you know, modern agile with creating a safe environment. If you can show someone that it's okay to, we've created this environment and we're not going to get mad or get upset or report a project red or whatever if requirements change, if we need to pivot and what we were doing needs to get thrown away and we do something new. Setting that stage makes it easier for the team to accept the idea to welcome change. And then to them, it's just another day in the office. Um, the teams that are that are new to the, the Agile world uh, I was lucky enough to most recently take over a team that was just getting started with it. Once we established, once once we established the idea that yeah, it's okay that things are going to change and we'll just deal, with, we'll adapt and deal with it as we go. When things come up now, it's not a big deal. It's more of a eh, okay. Well, let's replan and see what see what gets shifted, what comes in, and what goes out. And a big part of that is making the environment comfortable for that for those that team to say okay, well. If things change, it's not just a big deal. I can get away. I can deal with it. It's not like someone's going to come down down from the top of the mountain screaming at me. And uh, setting that expectation, I think for me, has been personally yeah. has been huge because it allows people to just, like you said, James, work themselves through that 
that natural life cycle of how people deal with change and they get comfortable with it. So Jay, how do you encourage that at an organizational level? So taking this up now from the team, because I think one of the things I've seen a lot is even in some of the companies I've worked with where it's, they're, they're doing, um, agile by the book and, and they've got their scrum practices down or their Kanban practices down at the team level, um, there's still a product roadmap in place for the next two years that says what feature is going to be delivered on what date. And there's no room at that level in the organization to invite change. So what are your recommendations for, for starting to um, welcome change in, in at that level? Ugh, that's a tough one. So teams are much easier to influence in organizations because they're smaller and more localized. Um, at the organizational level, well, I've had some, I've had some luck with just not playing dumb, but playing dumb, asking asking the people at the, um, I guess if we're talking safe, like the portfolio level or even the value stream level, um, to use a for lack of a better example, asking them, well, give me an example where of another roadmap where. It didn't go so well, and everybody's got those stories, those tribal knowledge stories of projects that have went on for years and years and years, and nobody wanted to kill it. And what they thought they wanted, they launched five years later, and it's completely different. Um, and when that when that example comes back, my response is usually, "So we would be better served by thinking in smaller increments, right? We'd be better served with more frequent touches to our customer to really ascertain where they want to go with it, and then build that." And sometimes I'm successful. More often than not, I'm not. It takes it takes constant, constant reinforcement to get people to get it. But you can't. I, I'm starting to see the, the current gig. I'm starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But it it's really comes down to again setting the expectation that well, look at what we've done previously, and that didn't work. Do we really want to do that again? Let's try and do it a different way. And when you start getting people thinking in those smaller increments, and okay, change isn't a bad thing because we're not. We're not spending 18 months hammering away on a program to come to find out that the customer, you know, we gave them veal parmesan and they wanted veal piccata or chicken piccata, chicken parmesan, right? I always go back to the chicken parm example. Um, we're not spending so much time. That's not so much waste. It becomes easier. And it's a it's a slow process, but it, it does work. Um, what have you seen, Colleen? How have you been successful with getting organizations comfortable with the idea to welcome Oh my God. Change. Well, I think that this is, like you said, it's very hard at the organizational level. And um, I've been on a little bit of a, of a, a death, death of the product roadmap crusade over the last couple months, um, just because I think it's, it's such an antiquated practice when you hold it up to what we're trying to do with Agile to try to forecast out um, what you're going to deliver in, in, you know, in 12 months. Um so um, I like to start there and try to in implement a practice for um, looking at things in the backlog um, at a product level as options, right? These are all options of things we could do based on feedback we're getting from things um, that we've already deployed. So creating a, you know, kind of a giant feedback loop that says, you know, at the end of this quarter, we, we hope to have... Um, these, you know, these four or five features deployed and kind of like James was saying, what outcomes do we hope to get from that? And what will those outcomes tell us that will help us pick what to work on in the next quarter? Um, and that often means that you have to have more options available to you than you're going to select, right? <laughs> Otherwise, they're not really options. Um, and that, that's a challenge for a lot of organizations. But I think if you can detach yourself from the concept of that plan, um, 
you know, I think that that plan creates a sense of security and it's a false sense of security, but these are the things we're going to do. And these are the things we're going to deliver. And um, you have to really detach yourself from that and be a little more fluid in what you're going to work on and let the customer kind of dictate what's going to be next. And, and I think the first part's kind of letting go of that um, product level roadmap. Uh, I will. I will say, give her before I before you respond. Um, I will say on my one of the funniest, not funniest, but almost enlightening remarks was made in my current engagement. I'm an, I'm knee deep in what was envisioned to be this somewhere between five and seven year program roadmap, like you said. Um, and I actually had someone who was responsible for making one of those giant Gantt charts that goes all the way out into 2022 turn to me and say, "I'm never doing a roadmap like this again." <laughs> It didn't survive the first 12 months. And we had a laugh about it. But my response was, so so is the problem that we created the roadmap or the problem that we spent so much time trying to time box everything? And the response was, you know what? It was helpful to create the roadmap because it forced us to think of the things we may inevitably want. So that wasn't a bad exercise. The rough exercise was trying to figure out, okay, well, this will take nine months to develop, two months to pilot, another month to load customers. The response to me was, um, the woman said to me, okay, so I think it was worthwhile to at least do the thought exercise, but I would not, I, I don't think we should have spent six months building this roadmap that, you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Um building out all these dates and timelines that were completely thrown out the window in the first in the first 12 months of running the program. Uh, Gifford, I sort of stepped on your response. What is it, What are your thoughts about us uh, introducing this idea of welcoming change at the enterprise? So, so one of the things that, you know, I, I would tell you that we need to focus on uh, descaling enterprises instead of scaling agility, but that's a, that's a talk for another day. Um, <laughs> but now one of the, one of the things we've been doing kind of, so, at the at the output of what the teams are working on is a is a basically a set of business outcomes in a, in a canvas. One of the things that we started doing was um, I took Jeff Patton's story mapping um, and upscaled it into the planning onion, so it is at the the enterprise level. And so you're basically going from the organizational strategic objectives uh, down to the outcomes that we want to potentially deliver to reach those strategic outcomes. So, you know, Colleen, you were kind of talking about looking at, you know, potentially more options. So now you have an actual, there, we had an actual wall that was literally like, here's all the strategic objectives all the way down to potential outcomes that we're going to do to, um, you know, so satisfy these. And then we would actually do some quarterly rolling plans. So, where Jeff would, at the end of that story mapping session, have you come in and slice out the releases and then the delivery strategies. We're actually going in and saying, all right, we're going to do a quarterly roll. So what are we what are we thinking we want to validate in this quarter and then having them go build? Um, and if, it, if it's successful, we just keep chewing, chewing along on those options with that, that train of thought, um, shuffling the priorities based on the, on the feedback coming in. But actually having a big visible wall of here's the corporate strategic objectives and then here are the outcomes that we think are going to potentially get there being able to have that as a information radiator so anybody in the company walking through actually sees um here's our corporate goals for the year like are we aligned it it's an information radiator that says this is working everybody can see what's in flight 
things that died because it wasn't working, things that are moving on. Um, that's been one of the biggest ways that I've been able to, to really, that's one of the most effective ways I've seen kind of changing that mindset um, in the upper level and the organizational level is put them right front and center of their goals so that everybody has to walk by them every day and we can see where the company is going oh. and whether we're hitting outcomes or not. Yeah, I love that, James. I think just the visibility um, when you tie that into decision making is something that's often lacking from that ability to to make change, you know, to make change quickly in an organization because that plan gets put together and published somewhere and stored away in a, on a drive and never looked at again until next quarter. Um, but when you have that visibility across the organization, you get to um, really see what everybody's working on across the groups and say, um, you know, is this the right thing? Do we need to make a shift? And where does that make sense? You guys both touched on something I want to circle back to real quick around the concept of um, short increments and commitments. And I guess I want to challenge some of what we do and ask you both, um, do things like uh, uh, PI planning in, in a scaled agile framework or even, even the concept of committing to what we're going to deliver at the end of two weeks, are those types of things counter to this principle? Mm. Uh fundamentally i could argue either way i could see where they would be uh counter counterproductive to the idea of accepting change if you're committing over two weeks if you're to you know to use the safe example committing to what you're going to do in the next 10 weeks um it does sort of spit in the face of the concept of um welcoming change because as soon as you accept a change then everything you know gets thrown right out the window uh, what do you think, Gifford? I mean, I've stopped using commitment altogether. It's a it's a forecast, um, and I, you know, I can't tell you how many sprints that we've had where we didn't map dependencies right, or you know, we got some new insights in late in the game, and we had to drop stuff and then just move on to the next most valuable thing. So, um, even even in a sprint, so for me, I, I stopped talking about commitments. This is what we think we're going to deliver, um, and this is what we, we forecast we're delivering, not this is what we're committing to deliver because things change. We run and we're discovering things that are unknown, um, especially on new projects, greenfield, maybe you're using brand new technologies. So, I mean, having a general, having a general path that we're going to go down, you know, it, it's good to have, but you know, you need to be able to, to change quickly if, if you hit that fork in the road. So I I've stricken, Literally, we have whole arguments around changing the message um, into forecasting and not commitments. It's that's a good point because that's a really strong word coming from the one guy here who's not married. Um, <laughs> commitment sort of terrifies people. The idea of commitment does terrify people. What what my team has started doing is we don't commit to stories. We don't commit to points. What we do is we say, okay, for this sprint, what do we want to accomplish? I want to finish up the batch job that's pulling the the file coming out of Oracle and spitting it into a service. And we just make those sort of statements. And the assumption is with that statement comes a whole shit ton of user stories and tasks and all that to go with it. And as things come up, we'll say, okay, well, we need to change this this goal for the sprint. We wanted to finish this interface, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Instead, we need to work on standing up this environment to get the integration piece ready. So you're right. The word commitment is strong and it does scare people. I'm I'm not against it. Um, 
but I do think it's easier to commit to or discuss a goal for what you're going to do in the next increment, the next iteration, as opposed to saying I'm going to complete 32 points of X amount of stories with Y amount of time. It's it's unrealistic because it doesn't welcome change. And, and I mean that's basically that's why I would actually prefer to you know work in a in a time boxless um, environment. I mean I get more enjoyment out of working in a, a more Kanban fashion where we're just continuously filling the list of the next most priority, most important things to the organization. If, if I, you know, if I could do more transfer, if, if I could start people out on a, on a less scrum focused journey, um, I, I think the, the conversation changes too. I mean, it is all within the delivery mechanisms that you choose that a lot of these bad things come up, like come to light. I, I've had more successful, more um, happy teams delivering in a Kanban manner where they're not doing sprints and being pushed to give commitments and trying to figure out how to jam something into a, you know, a two week time box. Not that Scrum, not that I'm saying that Scrum's not valuable, but you know. Right. Colin, what do you think about, um, does maturity have something, team maturity? Um, have something to do with the idea of commitments versus to James's point, you know, he said, I'd like to not start teams with scrum and start them with Kanban where they just get used to the idea of work in progress and flow, a flow based iterative um, delivery method. Do you think a mem- uh, how mature a team is comes into that scenario and makes it either easier or harder? Absolutely. Yeah. I get that question a lot, actually, if, if I would start teams with Kanban and um, you know, I, I think the, the, the consultant answer is <laughs> depends, right? But, um, you know, I think like I'm working on a big transformation project right now. And for a lot of these groups that a lot of these new teams where we're kicking Scrum off, um, the concept of, of a two-week commitment is so, it's light years ahead of what's happening right now. Um, and they don't even think that seems possible. Um, so welcoming change into two weeks is very reasonable, right? Um, you know, waiting waiting two weeks to see something prioritized is such a dramatic improvement over what's happening now. So I do kind of view that as a stepping a stepping stone to getting to more of a continuous flow model. That being said, there's a couple teams there where we're in implementing Kanban without implementing Scrum. Um, and we're doing that for the teams where their priorities are constantly different every day. So just that concept of, of a commitment or, or um, a target for their sprint um, would, I think, cripple them and cripple their morale um, and enthusiasm towards towards a new process um, from the very beginning. So we're taking some of the ops teams and some of the more operational teams um, and saying, let's start you guys out with Kanban from the very beginning so that you can welcome changing priorities on a daily basis um, and make sure everybody in the organization is pleased with what you're delivering and can see what you have on your plate. So um, and that, you know, in that case, it's not maturity. It's more about the type of work that's coming in on a, on a regular basis and how frequently it's changing. Huh. Awesome. I, I personally think my experience has been the team I'm currently with now, as they've gotten more mature, we have shied away from the whole rigid sprint planning, sprint commitments, PI planning. And it really has almost a Kanban under the covers appeal where it's really just flow. We have a rough idea about what our priorities are and we just pull the work in as we go. As one gets done, we pull the next the next highest priority thing 
and it just flows to the point where sprint planning is almost a non-event. PI planning for us is a non-event because we have the work already in our heads about what we need to do. We just let it flow through the system naturally. Um, it is literally Kanban yeah. over the covers with the two week increments jammed on top of it for a, for perfume on a yeah, and I sake. think in a lot of ways, those two week increments then become your checkpoints, right? Um, and I've seen, I've seen teams kind of in the middle of transitioning to a more traditional Kanban approach, um, do exactly what you're describing where it's Kanban under the covers, but you're, you're kind of bookending that with a, with checkpoints from a scrum perspective of, um, are we on track? How does this look with our overall objectives? Um, it does anything from a priorities perspective need to change. And, I, you know, I think those compare nicely. Yeah, agreed. All right. I so would agree we, with that as well. We're, um, we're getting to the end of our, of our series here. So to wrap up, I want to ask um, if we were to redo the actual Christmas carol of, what are we on? Two, two, two turtle doves. Right. Two turtle doves. Um, what would we title this step of on the second day of Christmas my Agile mentor gave to me? James, how about you first? A hall pass to the Gemba. <laughs> two of them. <laughs> two hall passes to I'm the Gemba. I'm going to say two features with defined fluidity sort of stay with the rhyme there <clears throat> because the defined fluidity is it's consistently going to change <clears throat> amorphous is a word i used in a meeting the other day and everybody was like what is that how do you spell that but <laughs> yeah. you get where i'm going yeah i like that <clears throat> i'd probably say two available options um to select from i like Perfect. it i like it well, that is about a wrap for us for our um, second second day of Agile Christmas. Um, if you're enjoying these, uh, please consider giving us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, your podcasting platform of choice, ratings and comments. If we haven't offended you, definitely help others find us. <laughs> and um, you can also um, contribute to the Agile Uprising by making a contribution to patreon.com slash Agile Uprising um, to keep these podcasts alive and going. Um, definitely join the conversation by sharing your experiment, experiments and thoughts around um, the principles and all of the things we're talking about during this series at the coalition.agileuprising.com. And um, thank you guys for joining us. Happy holidays. <laughs>